It's a pleasure to welcome to our series this morning the co-founders of highly respected property development and investment firm Revelop AU, Charbel Hazuri and Anthony L. Hazuri. Gentlemen, pleasure speaking with you both this morning. I thought we would start at the start. You both studied property economics at university. Anthony, where, where did the interest in property come from and, and what did you learn as part of that degree? Thanks, Rob. I think the interest in property sort of came from our family originally. We've, uh, my dad's uh, got his PhD in engineering, Chabelle's dad's been in the property game for a number of years as well. So we, he was sort of born in with the family. Um, it's also with the extended family, a lot of people we knew, but that was more resi. So the love of property sort of emanated at a very young age for the both of us, starting, you know, working on our respective parents' job sites and things like that. So when it came time to determine where we wanted to go next after, after high school, um, the, the, the property economics course sort of ticked every box. It was across many facets of property and gave us the ability to really learn about the different types of property we weren't exposed to. Residential, as I said, we were probably pretty well exposed to at the time, but none else. So it was, a good, it was, it was really good to give us that, that sort of grounding in various types of property um, and, and, and really give us that appetite as to which way we wanted to go. Um, and, and as property has probably been in our blood for many, many years. Um, and it's funny when you think about it, there really wasn't any other competing interests. It was always something in property. And we're just lucky enough that we went down a particular path in property uh, many, many years ago. And then, Chabelle, as I understand it, your first exposure after university to the property industry was, was actually renovating or rebuilding a, a house for a client. Take me inside that journey and, and that story, if you could. It was an interesting one, Rob. Um, I was in first year uni, Anthony was in second year uni, and I was actually working for Telstra at the time. I was selling phone lines and Anthony was working commercial real estate in Piedmont. So we were very uh, green to the industry and we had some knowledge of construction. And a friend of mine from school actually called saying his uncle was building a house um, in Bronte and he was having a whole heap of difficulty and he couldn't read plans. And he said, look, could we come past and actually assist them marking out the slab. He had concreted a slab but had no idea how to mark it up. So Anthony and I went there one day after our uni class and we assisted them to mark up the slab as good as we had known. It wasn't, wasn't that good actually because the first round, half the building was out of the, out of the slab. But I don't think that was our fault. I think that's how they pulled the slab back That's then, right. After a few <laughs> tries, somehow the whole house fit on the slab and it got built and somehow it finished. And it kind of was the catalyst that got us started and he gave us a bit of money to start and it was interesting times. We had no skin in the game, we were driven and we wanted to start something and lucky enough we're living at home so we had no risk and we could be bullish. So I guess that started Revelop and that was I guess the driving force to get us going. And as I understand it, the business launched in the depths of the GFC being 2008. Anthony, take me through the, the environment, if you could, in terms of the market conditions at the time and then how you went about raising capital to take on those early projects. I actually remember, Shabla, talking about the Bronte job when we started Revelop, uh, we were pouring three steps into a, into a garage <laughs> and I was on the phone to our accountant to set up the business. And, and that's, that's pretty much how it, how it sort of emanated. And, and, Market conditions at the time were sort of a little bit unbeknownst to us. We weren't in the industry to know enough about this was a good time or this was a bad time. For us, we saw it that there was opportunities. You would make an offer to someone, you would get a response. You could 
be really strategic about the way you purchase the property. You know, one of the first properties we purchased together sort of within this partnership was one in, well, one in Dundas, and it was just a domestic home for sale. Charbel, who, you know, as anyone will know, can sort of sell ice to an Eskimo, was able to negotiate a really good deal. We, were, we purchased under an option, gave us time to go in, you know, I drew the plans together with one of our architects, who was a good mate of ours. We got him approved. Again, it was this whole thing about, oh my God, you're taking a risk. But for us, we didn't see the risk. We didn't see it as a risk, we saw it as an opportunity. We thought, well, worst case, it's a house. We bought it under an option. We had a bit of money together from the renovation work that we were doing. And, and we sort of thought, well, if not now, then when? And I think when you look back, and we always say this, it was the best catalyst for us was those poor economic times. Because had the market been buoyant, had the market been you know, full of capital from banks, et cetera, we wouldn't have had these opportunities. We wouldn't have been able to buy a house and turn it into four townhouses. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to then go get you know, a very standard loan in order to then work, work the construction, et cetera. So I think those, those economic times were in a lot of ways good for us. And then we used that as, as a foundation to then to build on that, continued with the renovation works during those times. And again, even though the economy wasn't thriving or what have you, there were segments which were allowing us to make a bit of money. It was just how we used that money that was, I think, a bit unique. Um, and that was, there was a bit of foresight to that. Again, there was no, it wasn't reinventing the wheel, but it was taking advantage of some of that negativity to create what was a lot of positivity from that. And the reality is this has been, you know, 10, 15 years of really hard work that you've put in. When you reflect on, on the past decade or so, and in particular back in those early days, was there a business that you wanted to emulate or did you ever envisage that, that the business will get to the size and scale that it is today, Chabelle? We, to be honest, we were so naive. I don't think we ever expected the business to grow as big as it's gotten. And it was... We loved working together, we loved everything to do with property, but never in my wildest dreams false to, to look back now and say we could have achieved what we've achieved. And I know we definitely put in the hard, hard work and a lot of hours and looking back, uh, if you asked me to do it again, I probably can't because I think, I think it was a lot of sleepless nights and intense labouring at the beginning. And we did whatever we had to do to get to the next stage. And, I was always a firm believer life is all about stages and steps and you can never, I guess, burn the steps as you go. So we were, we were going step by step trying to achieve what we wanted to achieve, but we're also restricted. We only had limited funds. We've never brought in investors or had third party money. It was always our own funds. And we, we had a little, a little bit of money to work with and we had to extend it as much as possible so we could build this business. And the economic climate was definitely in our favour. We, we learnt, the first thing I think we learned in uni was options, mm. which was, I guess, the catalyst to growing this business. And the first property we bought was under an option. It cost us $5,000. And it, got, it gave us 12 months to capitalise on it. And Anthony was phenomenal on development. He was able to look at a property and say, you know what, let's think outside the box. What can we achieve that no one else has achieved? And that led to us doing some phenomenal development sites. And optioning them up when people never really understood options and it was good times because if you had $50,000 you potentially had 10 options you could take. 10 options could potentially turn into a lot of equity that you could build and our model was always driven on cash flow assets. Even though we had the residential development side it was a means to an end and 
the end was to build a cash flow model that we could inevitably keep working on and building the business with. And I think that, that came along from experience. We used to talk, a lot, talk to a lot of people and pick a lot of brains. And the biggest thing I think we learned was anyone that had financial issues or went broke before us, it was only because they had no cash flow. They had financial issues. They always had phenomenal sites. They had amazing developments. But the biggest issue and the reason they couldn't go to the next step was because they had no, they had no proper cash flow. So they were funding developments from their prior developments or living off their prior developments and nothing to, I guess, fund their business as a whole. And we found, I guess, that was a, an important piece for us that, you know what, well, we've made a development here. Instead of just reinvesting into another development, let's go and put it into a cash flow asset, which could end up fueling this business and grow it to what it is today. And I guess that was how it all came along. Anthony, just in, in terms of the challenges of, of you know, launching a business and, and growing it over the past 14 or so years, how have you been able to navigate those challenges and, and what were some of the, the biggest impediments, do you think? I think, like any business, you know, financial is the first and probably the biggest. You know, when you're young, the, you don't have the nervousness that you do when you're older and you've got commitment. So we're lucky we started when we were quite young. We had our families behind us, we were living at home. So we, we had a security blanket to an extent, but that we didn't have anyone handing us anything. So it was, you know, obviously we had to make do with what we had. But I think that was sort of the hardest part, but probably the best thing that ever happened to us. They talk about, you know, necessity being the mother of all creation. Well, I can assure you when you're in, you know, you're starting a small business and you're starting, especially in the property game and, and you know, an amount of money in property, even a big amount of money in property is not a lot of money, um, you have to be creative. So for me, I think a lot of those, a lot of those things where we were, had to work out, well, okay, as Shabal said about options, how do we, with a more, small amount of money, get a property committed? What can we do ourselves? You know, anything we could do ourselves, we did ourselves. To the extent that we're our, we're our own town planners, architects, lawyers, if we could research something, we would figure out how to do it, we would learn it, and we would do it ourselves. And that was the best thing we could possibly have done because it taught us so much along the way. You know, it's all well and good, and we've got some brilliant consultants and brilliant teams now, but it's all well and good to sort of have those guys, but you need to know enough to know you know, what's going on and how do you run these sort of businesses. So I think those sort of impediments around the finances and around resources um, led to a lot of the success we had in that we sort of made do really well. I think also at the end of the day, you know, you look at any business, um, you know, especially property, and you've got, you know, these 20-year-old guys that want to, you know, do a lot more than most 20-year-olds are doing at the time. You have perception as a massive problem. So, you know, for a long time, people thought, well, 30, not 20. You would rock up to a council meeting to talk about a bunch of drawings and a bunch of development sites and what have you. And, and you know, you'd, you'd, people would look at you. And as much as we knew what we were talking about, and I think once they actually sort of understood, okay, these guys have a bit of backing, I understand what they're talking about, obviously the respect came with it. But it takes time. And I think that's, that's the other thing. When you're, when you're starting out and you're, and you're fresh, you're... And, and you haven't sort of, you know, sort of come in on the coattails of anyone. You you need to establish a reputation, um, and that then extends to not only the people you're dealing with, real estate agents, banks, councils, tenants, um, but everyone really. And 
you sort of, we always, we always laugh, we always talk about how, you know, we had this mantra about fake it till you make it. And we, you know, we, we had, it was all about presentation, making sure that, you know, no matter what we were doing in the background, you know, we were, we were 12 people in the background, but we was only two of us. It just looked like we had a team. And, 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 I, you know, I, and I think that was, the be again, probably the best thing. And I, I, I say to anyone that's looking to start off a business, you're never going to start off with 10, 15 people, but you need to work as much as 10 or 15 people, know as much as probably 100. And that was all, again, that, that sort of pushed the growth. And, and as we sort of got into different areas of property and, and started to learn more things, um, we got involved in a lot of stuff that had nothing to do with us too. So we were helping people out with their, with their projects. Uh, made no money out of it, but we learned a hell of a lot. <laughs> you know, we learned so much about, about different things. We, we, and, and I think that's the other thing that, again, I thank God every day that we had that opportunity, that people gave us that opportunity. It wasn't about making money. We, we made out of a lot of those things probably nothing, but it was about that learning curve and about getting so deep into something um, that you're problem solving all the time. And that's really what our business is. Realistically, every single day, we're problem solving. We're working out how to convert one thing into something a lot bigger, how to take something that's struggling into something that's successful, and how to do it. And still now, yeah, the business has grown and we're very lucky, we've got the resources. But even now, the mentality of doing them in the most cost-effective and efficient way is, sticks with us. And again, that's just a, that's, that's a byproduct of coming from a very small business into a large business, we still want to make sure that everything we're doing is efficient. Because otherwise, I think we, we, we again, we, we always talk about this, it's not fun. If you just throw a whole bunch of money at a problem or you get a whole bunch of people to come fix it for you, we have no purpose anymore. So we still do it, we, we are a bigger scale, but still do it the way we grew up doing it over the last 15 years. And I think, Hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll do it for, for many more years to come. I was just saying, it was just great times. You know, I, it, for 15 years, I don't think we've ever sat down and actually reflected on what we've achieved and how fun the beginning days were. It was, in hindsight, probably the, the best part of the last 15 years were those, the first one or two years, the establishment stage. Thinking about how, you know, we worked off a reception desk, side by side, making phone calls, trying to be a business a lot bigger than what it was, really. And it was all perception and mate, it was fun. We worked 20 hour days, but it felt like you went in two, two minutes. Mm. And mate, you know, then slowly it grew and now you wake up in the morning and you've got a list as long as anything. And you think, how are you gonna even start it to finish it? So, you know, that, that was actually in hindsight, we've actually never looked back and reflected. Clearly the, the dividends of that hard work has paid off. It must be said you're both still, I think, 33 years of age, 33, 34, so yes. still, still very young. The other aspect I wanted to ask you about was at what point along the journey was there a moment or, or a particular deal where you just had a feeling that the, the business was going to be a success? You mentioned transitioning from residential into the commercial sector. Was there a particular moment where you, where you knew, OK, we're on the right path here, this is going to work out? Or It was. Um, it was one of our first sites we ever bought. It was actually in Castle Hill. We had bought a property that was approved for a childcare centre. It was from, it was the Anglican Church, wasn't it? I think it was actually, yeah. Uh, they were, I think the Anglican Church owned it. We ended up selling it back to the yeah. it, it was the Anglican Church and it was approved for a childcare. This was just after the GFC. ABC had 
gone bust and a lot of their childcare centres had come on the market. There was no interest in childcare at that point in time. And there was a new scheme that came out, it was the SEP scheme, where affordable housing was established. And we thought, well, you know what? Childcare wasn't going to work. Apartments weren't permissible in, in this zone at that point. And we thought, well, what are our other options? Anthony discovered the SEP and it was the first, I think one of the first sites that ever got lodged to council under the SEP. And no one knew how to, I guess, assess it. No one knew how to determine what this is because you're going and putting affordable housing in apartment form in a low density zone. So we, um, that was our first, our first big win because the Anglican Church, actually, Anglican Church actually ended up buying that site back, for, back from us because they didn't want affordable housing in their development. They owned the entire estate in Castle except for this one block. And even though they sold it to us, they had to buy it back because there was a change in management and they didn't want affordable housing. And that was, I guess, the first win. We sold that at a substantial premium. And that kind of, I guess, was the catalyst that got us going. And I think that was the turning point. At that point, we were, you know what, we finally made a decent profit. We could finally go buy a cash flow asset at that point. And that started funding. And we were very nimble at the beginning. We were always paying ourselves the absolute minimum so we could reinvest and try and build this beast. And that one gave us the push we needed to take it to the next level. So I think that was definitely a, a, one of the turning points. And then the next one was, I guess, buying our first shopping center. Mm. That was when it was a big reality check because we had never owned retail. We always owned strip shops, which were smaller form of retail. And we had an opportunity to buy a sub-regional shopping center in regional South Australia. And we're going from owning a thousand square meter retail center to a 15,000 meter sub-regional in regional South Australia. And to be honest, me and Anthony had never been to South Australia. We, um, I don't think it was even on the radar to buy a shopping center, but an agent called, he said, look, there's an opportunity here, they want to sell. And we always looked at anything in sort of value. He said, well, look, it was a 15,000 meter center, it was only built recently, it cost double what they were offering it for. And I thought, well, what's wrong with it? He goes, mate, nothing. It's just, you need to do some leasing. And mate, we're naive. We never understood. We didn't understand retail enough. And I think being naive was the real driver here. So we, um, I told Anthony, let's get on the plane and let's go to South Australia. It was our first trip. He goes, okay, let's go. So you think we would have done a bit of research because we, we arrived in South Australia and had no idea it was three hours drive. And we had to fly back out that same day at five o'clock. So we got in the car, put in the nav and realised it was a six hour round trip and we only had 35 minutes at the location to look at the property. So we got to um, Renmark and we walked through and we both looked at each other and said, what aren't we seeing here? It's a big building, it presents amazing and we've got a Woolworths and a big W and all these shops and what they're asking is what you buy a house for in some parts of Sydney. So it didn't make sense and we said, you know what, let's buy it. Someone's finally t accepted our offer, let's do it. So <laughs> we- um, And there was no stamp duty. And there was no stamp duty, so I thought, you know, it was one less burden to worry about. We went back and we told the agent, okay, we'll go ahead. I don't think he even believed that we were going to do it. And that was the first centre we bought. And that was definitely the next driver that took us to the next level. And that was a centre we travelled to weekly. And we put all our effort into and we turned it around and we tripled its value. And it was, it was the most enjoyable 18 months doing that centre because, you know, it was... We saw the turnaround. You know, the, the reaction from the community was phenomenal. They had this big beast that came into their town, which 
ultimately killed their high street. And there was a lot of backlash from the local community about boycotting the main shopping centre because the high street got affected. And me and Anthony got very involved with the community. We hired a centre manager from, from the community and she was very relatable. And we sat down with as many people as we could every trip we made. And slowly, you know, the, the, the opinion of everyone improved and they started giving the, the centre um, another go and we started attracting more tenants from within the high street to come in and working with the council to reposition their high street because ultimately if we could create a great town the centre is only going to benefit and after 18 months the centre got full and we had a an extensive wait list of tenants wanting to come in and and the high street itself has improved and it was just working with the council and the 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 town as a whole and I think last year Renmark won the best was was a regional yeah from a shopping center perspective for ESD as well for the whole ecological side of things and green star ratings and things like that so really impressive but yeah Renmark as a town in general is now I think the number one tourist ah as a town in general yeah the Riverland and Renmark in particular is number one tourist destination in SA so it's a cracker cracker location yeah and I think it's it's the efforts of what the high street's done what we've done as a shopping center and creating that amenity but the town as a whole so that was definitely um, Renmark was, was a, big, a big turning point in our business. And I presume that then set off a chain of events for you to become such a prolific owner of shopping centre and, and retail assets. When you, and this is two parts to the question, what are, you, what are the fundamentals that you look for before acquiring some of these assets? And then once you've acquired them, how do you go about turning around those assets? I think, well, what do we, what do we look for ultimately? There's got to be upside. So no, we're not set and forget landowners. So we need we need to be able to see that we can make a difference. We can create growth. We can create growth very quickly. Um, that that can happen in many different ways. That could be lease repositioning. Could be from you know upgrade cosmetics to extend the centre. Um, it could be something as simple as you know the tenancy mix. Uh, it could be as something as complicated as an entire redevelopment. You see that sort of uh, that sort of spread in terms of the different types of um, upside that we see in assets. Things like tram sheds is on one, one end of the scale, then you see things like City Cross at the other end of the scale. You know, City Cross, major redevelopment, not only tenancy repositioning, but a lot of construction, a lot of cosmetic work, a lot of, a lot of actual physical work that needs to be done. Tram sheds looks beautiful. It's a, been really well developed, but it needs some tenancy remixing, some improvements on the service base to get people more in the door. So for me, that I think, and when Shabal and I sit down and we look at an asset, that's probably the first main thing is if we can't create upside, if we don't see growth, probably, probably not for us. Beyond that, it's also got to be quite strategic within our pool of property now. So obviously when you're, you know, you, your first few, they're scattered. Uh, Renmark was one of the first, and then you look at other across Sydney and uh, and Victoria, and quite quite scattered in the first few. But then you want to look at okay, well now how do we create a bit of a network? Because ultimately, from a staffing perspective, from a marketing perspective, from all those sort of things, you want to sort of see the cohesion between centres. How can we how can we utilise uh, the resources of one centre to another? How can we make you know one centre work off another? And that's where things like you know, acquisitions sort of start looking at more location-based and start saying, okay, well, we've got French's Forest, we've got, you know, Lock and Square Village, let's look at, you know, we purchased Emerton. They sort of that Sydney metro vein, South Australia, okay, well, if we're going to set up a team there, we need critical mass, 
Hence, you know, bought, there's, there's five in South Australia now. Victoria's on its growth path at the moment. You know, again, like we always do, first one was regional. So <clears throat> looking, at, looking at all those sort of things, and then, and then ultimately also we look at how that then contributes to the overall pool of assets. So, you know, by bringing in this centre, will it establish a new relationship with a particular tenant? Will it uh, open up an avenue in terms of uh, some development pathway? So there's, there's, there are a number of things. For us, it's, it's all about the maybe slightly more subjective stuff that Charbel and I look at. The numbers are secondary. I know it sounds silly, but ultimately, you know, what, what the numbers look like on acquisition are highly irrelevant to us in most cases because oh. they're, they're just, let's be honest, most, most of the time the numbers, you know, outgoings are under or overestimated. Passing income is probably, you know, something completely wrong. And, and, and for us, we look at those numbers and, and it sort of maybe sets a benchmark for us. It's a bit of a goal then and say, okay, well, we think we can get it to this on an NOI basis or on a cap rate basis. But, yeah, the, anyone that buys a shopping centre based on what it's doing at a point in time shouldn't be buying shopping centres. They're organic assets. They're, they're, they evolve every day. You know, what, what it does today won't do tomorrow. So we, that we take a very long-term view on things and take, make sure that we can actually see that upside, that growth, that contr contribution to the portfolio before we look at any acquisition. Chabelle, I want to ask about this diversification piece. In particular, you've got a, a diversified portfolio of assets within different asset classes, but also geographically, which to my knowledge is quite rare for a, for a private business to have assets in South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and across commercial, retail, recently co-living and residential. Is that a deliberate strategy or is that just adapting to market conditions? Um, not at all. It'll just, yeah, adapting to market conditions is one. I guess me and Anthony looking at opportunities. We, we, SEP Living was a big one when that came out and Castle was a good example. It was an opportunity to buy land that was low density, a lot cheaper to buy, but able to put apartment living on. And that kind of was a catalyst to building affordable housing, um, which is a big portfolio we still hold to this day. And it led to the likes of our boarding houses and our co-living. Um, developments and then childcare was always a great asset class we loved because it was a single tenant, they were on net leases, we could bank on that income coming in monthly and there were, there were a service that was needed and there was a lot of government funding backing it. Retail, we fell into it with Renmark and once we realised we could run a sub-regional shopping centre, we realised we could run anything and one cent it turned to 20 very quickly and we love we loved the idea of retail because relationship-based. We were able to sit with a tenant and say, well, how can we improve your business? We love the idea of understanding their business more than them. We wanted to know how they made a profit, how they worked. And once we got that model right, we were able to replicate, we were able to grow with our tenants. And we realised it was very relationship-based. And Renmark, I guess, was a catalyst for retail. Childcare was one of our first investments we did together at Borkham Hills. It was a 33-place childcare centre. And when we developed that, we realised, well, you know what, this is great. It's a single cheque. The tenant's paying all the outgoings. It's land tax exempt. There was all these benefits. We didn't understand why people weren't getting on board. And we end up, if we were, we'll buy an asset and it was determined either going to be a boarding house, it was going to be SEP housing, or it was going to be a childcare. We never really played too much in the apartments or townhouse space. We did a few when it was the ultimate, the best option to do, but 
the diversification came about naturally, organically. It was just what we fell into at the time. It was whatever was, what was the best outcome for that block of land. And we did develop a lot. I think I was going through our list and we've done about 160 developments in the last 15 years and we still own a vast majority of them. And it was just naturally as we bought an, an option and we developed the asset, it was either going to be one of these asset classes and if it was well performing and it worked well, we kept it in our portfolio. And um, yeah, I think that's what, how it all came about. And is that still the mandate today? So it's developing and or investing in assets that have cash flow as opposed to just sort of developing and selling, developing and selling? Yeah, I don't think we've sold a development site in years. It's purely cash flow driven at the moment. It is how one is, is it going to be a standalone cash flow asset like a childcare or it could be a medical centre? Is it going to be a retail centre, which we're doing quite a bit at the moment in the townhouse, um, in the town centre space? or is it going to be boarding houses? And that diversification was very attractive for our banks. As I mentioned before, we only work with the major banks and for them, they wanted to know that we're low risk. And the only way you could be low risk is to know that you've got enough skin in each, in each industry. It's not just retail driven. We were, if retail was going to get affected one week, boarding houses and affordable housing has the opposite effect. It goes up because people need cheaper living. Childcare was always a very safe asset class, especially now where I think it's 90% government funded. So that's been a, a great boost and bonus for a lot of our operators and ultimately given us the drive to develop a lot more childcare. I think we've got about 12 in the pipeline to add to the portfolio and it's, it's great. There's a lot of operators out there that are, that are great at what they do and it's allowed us the opportunity to develop further for them. Yeah, but it's all just organic growth. It's just determining what was the best option for that block of land when we purchased it. Anthony, I want to ask you, no doubt you've been approached by people over the years to take the business into the public markets. What are the, the benefits of remaining private, do you think? Agility. Look, I think, I think, it's, I think the, the, the thing for me and Charbel is always we control our own destiny. We very rarely call ourselves a partnership, we're just, we're one. We, we make decisions together, we work really well together. It's not like, you know, we've got this share or that share. So for me, we haven't grown up or understood or worked in an environment where we've got people to report to or people to account to or any of that. And I don't, we, we, that, that, that's not our personalities. We want to make decisions within 30 seconds. We want to be able to, you know, not have to uh, present a 35-page report in order to, to go buy something tomorrow. We don't want to change the recipe. What we've done and what we have been doing and, and how we've been doing things has worked. And I get the benefits of, you know, uh, going into the public space or, or, or somehow capital raising or, or, or one of those sort of things. And, and their opportunities have presented themselves on a number of occasions. But I think for us, for what, who we are and the type of sort of business we want to run, we still want our we still want our flexibility. We want our um, we want our life. You know, we've got young families. We want to come and go as we please. We want to buy as we please, sell as we please, lease as we please. Like, we still do the twenty thirty thousand dollar lease deal ourselves. We'll do the five million dollar lease deal. We'll do a portfolio deal with the biggest retailer in Australia at the same time as we're talking to you know talking to the mum and dad chicken shop. And for us, that's what our business is about. And for, for us, we don't want to change what our business is about. So whilst there are a lot of uh, quite appetising options out there in terms of you know being able to 
grow a lot quicker. Um, I think we've shown that, you know, our model has probably given us equivalent, if not greater growth prospects and speed than potentially going, prior, going public or, 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 or capital raising or something along those lines. And still maintaining our independence and our ability to, to really live as we want to live and, and do as we want to do and, and, and make our mark as we want to make it. Um, and I think that's the most important thing for the both of us. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Chabelle, is the partnership that the, the both of you have got together. What, what makes the two of you so successful in working together? We understand each other. I could go into a negotiation knowing Anthony's got my back 100% and Anthony can go into his part of the business and know that I'll support any decision he makes. We, we know what we're good at. We know that we specialise in what we do and you know, there's a lot of trust. We've known each other since we were babies and we were brought up basically as brothers. Our dads are brothers and it's just knowing each other has the other person's best interest. And you know what, we've, we've grown this business from nothing. We know what's, what it's going to take to get to the next level. And I, think, I guess it's just trust, ultimately. I think that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, partnerships happen between different people, you know, strangers, family, what have you. But I think if you, you know, you love and respect the other person and you have, as Shabal said, their best interest at heart, you sort of have that mentality that you're, you're operating as one. You're not operating competing interests or, or, or side, you know, sideways interests. You're operating as one. And at the end of the day, what's good for one is good for the other. So ultimately, as long as you trust each other and as long as you've got that objective in mind, um, a partnership will be successful. And that's the most important thing. Some people might say that given you've delivered over 160 projects to market, you've got a development pipeline in excess of a billion dollars, 300,000 plus square metres of gross lettable area that, that, you know, why don't you just sort of stagnate and, and just work with what you've got? What, what drives you to, to keep going and keep wanting to achieve? We still love it. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, we always say, like, if we're not doing this, what would we be doing? So it's certainly not, there's no target in mind, there's no financial sort of, I need to get to this or I want to get to this. It's, we love what we do, um, we think we're good at what we do, and ultimately we don't see ourselves doing anything else. And, you know, we're still young and we've got young families and we've got very supportive wives and families, and for us that's sort of given us the ability to continue to, to, to grow and to, to continue to work and get the best of both worlds. So I think because we were able to do it at a young age and because we've got, you know, as I said, credit to our wives, they, they, they support everything we do and they give us the ability to have the best of both worlds. We, we can be dads, uh, we can be husbands, we can be, you know, sons and brothers and friends and all of that. We can, we can have all of that. But at the same time as having this, this business. And I think because of that, um, it is still fun and we still love it. We always said to each other, if you'd ever got to the point where this became work or this became too hard or, or we hated doing it, we would stop. But, you know, I can't see that happening anytime soon. And, you know, we, we, we talk about it all the time. And even there's times, you know, I want to, I get stressed about something. I walk into his office, I'll be like, I'm, you know, I'm over this. And, you know, he'll laugh at me and we'll, and, and we'll get over it in five minutes. And so for as long as that's the case, then why would you stop? Um, and I don't think money is any sort of objective. You know, it's, I would say it's a scorecard, um, but it's certainly not an objective. It's, it's, the overall, it's the overall outcome. You know, for every project that you deliver, 
Was it delivered in the best way? For every deal you do, was it the best deal you could have done? Um, you know, watching, watching our staff grow with us and learn with us and, and, and love what we do and love how we do it and, and, and you know, run this place like it's their own, that is another massive reason why we continue as well because it's no longer... We, yes, it's us in terms of a partnership, but we have such an amazing team behind us that, you know, we, we grow every single day for them and because of them, essentially. Um, and I think that's also another massive reason why you know, there's, it's, it's not something which will hit a certain time limit expiry, financial objective or what have you. It's very subjective. It'll, it'll hopefully never come to it, but if it ever came to either of us that this, this business became an impediment versus being what it is, which is a massive driver, then maybe at that point we would consider what we did with it. But yeah, not on the cards. I think it's also, we talked about milestones in our business, but it's also milestones in achievements we've achieved. I remember looking back when we started and we sat at the reception desk at my sister's office. And you know what, my, I thought what an achievement it would be one day to have an office. So imagine <laughs> we could walk into our own space and it's our space and you could sit at your own desk. We were working off a desk that was probably a metre long and we were sitting side by side. And I remember our first office, which was just up the road. It was an old heritage cottage and we moved in and that first night, me and Anthony looked at each other. We had no employees. We actually had my wife worked with us for a few months and she was the only employee at that point. And we looked at each other saying, you know what, this is our space. How amazing. Saying we went from a reception desk to our own space and that was a big milestone. And it was, it was never, I think, the, a credit to our success, we were never driven by financial gain. We were driven by those little successes. And I remember moving into our office, you know, one day I want to have a corner office. You see all these movies and all these shows and imagine, you know what, the big achievement is to have a corner office. And when we developed this office, I got my corner office and when I sat there, I said, you know what, amazing. And they're, they're the stuff I actually got excited about. It wasn't the 100 plus projects we've done and all the success we had. It was just those little milestones where we started from nothing and were able to achieve these goals that we had. And I guess they were the real... Um, the real special moments in this I, business. I think as well, you know, talk about success and what you define as success is it's, you know, <clears throat> having the ability to drop our kids off at school in the morning, you know, being able to be at every event that they've got, take them to swimming on the weekends, that to me means we've actually done something right. You know, not being so worried about work that we have to be in at 6 a.m. and can't leave till midnight. Being able to put them to bed at night. Like, for me, they're such critical elements of success because we grew up with that. You know, we grew up with very, very present families. They worked extremely hard, our parents, but we don't remember not having those sort of things in terms of I was dropped off every day, Shabba was dropped off every day, picked up, taken to school, taken to whatever we needed to do. So for us, it goes to what I was saying earlier in terms of being able to tick all those boxes and having all of those things. For, for, I know for both of us, their real milestones of success and being able to you know, go on holidays and switch off with the kids and with your family. We weren't able to do that a few years ago. You know, for a few years ago, we would you know, put the kids, put, you know, whether it was put a, go, go to bed, our kids would go to bed or our wives would go to bed or whatever it was, and then we'd be up because it would be Sydney time and we needed to focus on something. Again, being able to have a business that can sort of run itself without us and let us focus on our families and, our, and those which are our number one priorities. They're those real cool milestones of, okay, you know what, all those years of, of grunt and hard work and grind, 
led to the point where at our age we can have that flexibility to do those things. I think that's, that's so critical. And just as an extension of that point, what have you learnt along the journey and, and if you were starting over again today, is there anything that you would do differently? I wouldn't change a thing. You know, all the negative things we, we did, we learned from. They were important milestones in us growing the business to what it is today. And there was a lot of dumb decisions we made and a lot of mistakes we made along the way. But you know what, it led to a successful story thereafter. And you know what, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to be where we are at the moment. I wouldn't change a thing. No. And I think all those mistakes you talk about you make, the, the benefit of that only reinforced our sort of our ability to work together because, you know, I would sit there and stress about something or overthink something or what have you and, and Shabu would come in and, and, and have a solution that I wouldn't have thought of, vice versa. Or we would, you know, we would, we would be <coughs> locked into a situation and we knew we had to figure out our way out of it. And, and for us, I think Shabu's a massive pusher, so he's the type that will drive and he will, he's got expectations that I could only dream of in terms of, you know, I would not have thought to buy Renmark personally, you know, for example, buy a sub-regional shopping centre before you buy a, a neighbourhood, you know, it's the wrong step. He's got that. I can come in and, and okay, well, you know what, we're in this position, we're going to do this, so how do we make this now work the best for us? So. With every decision you make and with every sort of, uh, I guess, sort of step along the way, I think, you know, no, there was no, reg there's no regrets, there's nothing you would change and do differently. I think if anything, what the la what more recent reflection has sort of, sort of led me to believe and led us to believe is that, you know, all those things that we may have at a younger age thought, are we doing the right thing or uh, could we be doing something different or could it be easier? I think it, it really is satisfying to reflect back and think, you know what, we were so lucky that those things all happened the way they did. We were so blessed that at every step in the way that, you know, whether it went right or wrong for us, um, it led to this, you know, and it also, it also led to a learning path and experience, um, something that, you know, we can reflect on it and be proud of because, you know, sometimes it's the, it's the, it's the crazy stuff that you do or some of the more, you know, the, 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 the things that you might think at the time are absolutely ridiculous that you sit there and talk about later and laugh about a few years later and think, oh my God, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to us. Shabelle, Anthony mentioned drive there. What, what inspires you? Where does that drive come from? I can answer it for him. He's highly competitive. <laughs> and I think the thing about Shabelle is that because he's competitive and he's a perfectionist, there's no way of doing things like everyone else does. I think that's really critical. Um, you know, you, 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 you sort of take the good and bad with with, every, with everything that gets done. But, you know, he's the type that even when I'm willing to sort of sit back and think, you know, now's not the time for this, or, you know, let's do things a bit more traditionally or conservatively or, or what have you, there's, you know, what, what he brings to the table is that ability to, to think outside the box. He doesn't walk away from a problem, but that drive comes from that, that, that desire to, again, it's not financial, it's just desire to, to do better and do greater and bring greater. And I think that, that really is such an important piece to any partnership because, you know, I remember early on, you know, growing up, we've got very different personalities about a lot of things and early on, there was always this thing about, you know, when we started the partnership and we're, we're, we're family, so, you know, if there was going to be a problem, it would cause problems across the family and what have you. And 
we both knew that was never going to be the case because we both have the personality that if anything ever got between us, we would let it go and our relationship's always going to be more important. But I think one of the big key successes behind things is Charbel's, as I said, he's a pusher, he's a driver. Um, and for me, that was, you know, whilst we all push and we want to do things, he does it in a very particular way. It's very logical also because it's, he, he's already thought of everything first. So that, that drive is very critical. And I think that then gives me the ability to, to really then problem solve. Because, you know, I always laugh at him. I always say, you know, you've put us in this. Now, I've got to, now, we've got to, now we've got to figure out a way to make it work. And, and that's made me so creative. And I think that's, that's that made me work better ways with the banking structures and better ways with the planning structures. And, and you know, we, we think back to how things were done. Um, and nothing was ever done in a conventional way. And again, I think we attribute a lot of our growth to that. I think that's really important. I think the fact that these opportunities presented themselves, I'm a firm believer if you've got an opportunity, you take it. And Anthony will probably hate this comment because every time an opportunity presents itself, I want it. But it's, I guess, what's driven us to where we are today. And I think and a lot of people look at opportunity and don't, jump on it and don't take it and they look back and regret it and I know where we can push ourselves and I know yes we may stretch ourselves on certain deals to get there but me and Anthony could look at an asset and know we could turn it around and I know he mentioned before that we could look at financials and everything I'll be honest we could look at an asset and within two minutes our gut will tell us what we're going to do and I think 99% of our assets we've bought purely off gut when Renmark was a perfect example I didn't know how to read a financial schedule I barely knew what outgoings were, I'll be honest. It was just, we're naive. I looked at a big building. I looked at a lot of income. And I thought, you know what? I'm borrowing from the bank at this amount and this asset's going to give me this amount. And I thought, well, you know what? There's, there's a positive here. And we could add all this extra value. And being naive was a massive benefit, I guess, in those first few assets because we got in at the right time. There were great opportunities. And if we, had, if we hadn't taken those opportunities, we wouldn't have grown as fast as we did. And we're talking a matter of yeah, five years. Five years. Yeah. We've gone from one shopping centre to 22 shopping centres and about nine in the pipeline and major town centres. And you're talking two guys that never owned retail coming into the retail space and dominating it in the private sector because there's very few privates that own this many shopping centres and understand the space. And we've kind of grown very quickly. We understood the market. We understood what we're dealing with. And then we said, well, how can we improve it? How can we manage these assets? How can we control the entire process? And it's credit to Anthony. It's I'm, I'm good at buying the assets and he's the one that has to do with all the other headache. But he's, he was very forward thinking. He said, you know what, we're going to own these assets. We've got to know how to manage them. And the days of having to contract that out had to go. And we brought in a great management system and we brought all the management in-house and it allowed us to grow. It allowed us to look at an asset and say, well, you know what, if we can manage it from the get-go and add the value we're thinking straight away, that's going to lead us to other opportunities and be able to pull equity out of these assets a lot quicker than le letting someone else do the leasing or letting someone else manage the asset. And we're at their discretion at how fast this asset can improve. So it's been a fun process, but it's been a very fast process. And the fact that we could move and going back to the other question about why wouldn't we ever go public or sell, sell, the, sell the business, because we need control. I need to be able to go into an asset and say, you know what, this is the decision we're going to do and it's done. I don't have to report to a board, I don't have to write a paper, I don't have to get someone to make the decision. If we can make the decision, it's led to where we are today. I think it's important as well that the whole, 
the whole metrics of retail, like we talk about the last five years and that was where there's been a lot of growth. But we established a, a foundation 10 years before that to get us the ability to do those sort of things. So we talk about diversification of the portfolio and childcare and boarding houses and affordable housing and strip shops and other commercial forms of development. They established a foundation that, you know, it, we, we always get those comments, you know, you've bought something every week or you're buying a lot. But ultimately, it, we spent a long time setting that, setting that foundation up, setting that bedrock up for growth. You know, every decision we made for the 10 years before we, we got heavy into retail was all about, you know, the ability to scale up. So property management and, and running a property management, having the property management arm, that started in the residential space many, many years before that. So we had exposure to that. We were licensed. We had the procedures in place, all of that. So then scaling it up to bring commercial in-house fully wasn't as difficult as starting from scratch. We had the understanding. It was just a matter of adapting. Um, similarly with the whole, you know, doing deals in terms of doing a leasing deal uh, in, in a commercial centre. We, we, we had assets that we had bought, smaller assets, or we built or bought in the, you know, prior to Renmark and prior to that sort of growth phase. So we learned about the importance of doing the right leasing deal. You know, we didn't look at it from a traditional sense of put up a four lease sign or, or, or you know, get a local agent involved on it. We, we knew that if we were going to do good deals and we we're going to do the deals that were going to last, um, we had to do those ourselves. That was Shabelle and I meeting those tenants, giving them faith that, you know what, the guy that's investing his money into this wants me in this asset. They want me to have the bakery or the butcher or the, or the supermarket or whatever it is. So, and, and that, I feel like, makes the difference in closing a good deal because nine times out of ten, these guys get approached by a local agent or someone at arm's length from the owner. And that personal relationship has disappeared. And that's where... That's where we, I think, shine. That's where we really add our layer is that we're able to, even now, we, we still, we travel out to SA, we, 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 we see every single tenant. And I think for us, again, another measure of success is that we walk through our shopping centres, we walk through our assets, and everyone is happy to see you. And you know what? It, there's always issues, and tenants know that, and we know that, but they're happy to see you because, not because everything might be perfect, you'd hope that's the case, but not, sometimes it's not but they know you're there to listen. They, they know you're not gonna walk past them. You're gonna say hi, you're gonna have a coffee with them. They're gonna vent to you and we'll have a solution before we take off the next day. And I think that's been another massive driver in, in, in the success story. And, and, and that is foundational. You know, we did that with the smaller assets, gave us the knowledge and the ability to do that with the bigger stuff too. Final question for you both. So what is the next five or, or 10 years look like? How big could this business become? Would you look at expanding into other states or even internationally at some point? Look, I know for me, um, I, I, I didn't imagine the business to be where it's at today. You know, if we're talking, if we're being honest, it's, it was never a, I never, you know, uh, in 2008 said I want a business worth X or a business doing Y or any of that. But Chabelle put it pretty well before in terms of it's all opportunity driven. It's all about where's the right opportunity for us and what works for us. Could we move into other states? Absolutely, there's nothing stopping us. We've, we've done it. You know, if we could do it in, in the states we're in at the moment, then we can certainly do it in others. Whether the opportunities present themselves or not, I'm not sure. The, in terms of size, as I said, we don't really measure ourselves on, a, on, a, on that sort of basis. We, we look at, you know, the delivery and the success of the delivery. And for us, we've got a pretty significant pipeline now, um, and that pipeline's growing. 
So I think in terms of the next five years, for me, it's a matter of delivering what we said we're going to do in terms of delivering that pipeline and more, growing, growing our staff base, growing, growing our support base for our tenants, growing the, the, the network. And I think for me, it's a matter of also making sure that over the next five years, we as a business are, have a structure or a template that's not only scalable, but also is pretty enviable in terms of being a model for what a private, you know, not only retail property owner, but a diversified property owner uh, should look at, look like. And again, that's not size driven, that's more just structure driven. And that's about the different elements that as a property owner um, or a property investor across many different diversified parts of the industry uh, should look like and should have in their, in their sort of inner circle. And, and for me, that's really this, that, that, that really is the most important part uh, because realistically, once that's in place, everything else, is, everything else can be added on, adapted on, grown. Um, really, the sky's the limit from here. Yeah, if you asked me five years ago, would we be where we are today? I'd say never in my wildest dreams. So I think the next five years are going to be very interesting. We've got a phenomenal pipeline. Delivering that is paramount. I think that's going to be our our number one priority. And also, you know what, as opportunities present themselves, I, I, I still love what we do. It's not work. I come here every day, I'm happier than the day before. I love this business, I love the people I work with, and I love the industry. So hopefully it continues to grow and we can continue to diversify. There's certain sectors we haven't gone into. We're only talking about HK yesterday and we laughed. I said, well, why have we never explored that? And you know what, in five years time, we may have a portfolio of HK. So we are open and we're happy to try anything. Um, but I think it'll be an interesting uh, conversation in five years when we look back and hopefully we're as happy as we are now and we're still loving what we're doing because I've got no interest in stopping anytime soon or getting out of this industry anytime soon. So hopefully it's just growth. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you both this morning. Thanks so much for your time and for the opportunity. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Rob.